Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship's Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Teacher Paul Francisco. Join us as we are appointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone as recorded in God's Holy Word. So this is God's Word for God's people. And it is pretty amazing word to, to consider the circumstances happening here. And so what I want you to do is take a moment. I want you to think back in on time in your life when you were fearful of a situation which would require courage on your part to either speak or act. You see, when I was deployed in Iraq, because we were in such a remote area between two military bases, about 180 miles from one to another, uh, we were responsible at this radio relay point about halfway in between. It was about 40 miles in length that we were in charge of, uh, helping to keep watch over the area, uh, to also do radio communications, uh, take care of medevacs, uh, clear the area for um, improvised explosive devices. And the only way we could get regular supplies was to travel about 57 miles away to the nearest base. And every time it was my turn to go with this three-vehicle convoy and leave our little RP area, about a quarter-mile uh, diameter, I remember having this e internal fear that today this might be a last day of my life on earth. You see, most of us hate confrontation or even are fearful of it. But there comes a time when we must rely on Christ to give us the courage to do what is right despite our fears. So I pray this morning, beloved, through God's Word, and this week, praise the Lord, that you could actually hear my voice, that we may be like Esther, as we see in the text, confronting sin and calling for justice rather than like Haman, who continued in sin and then got caught in his consequence. But as a means of recapping, because there's a lot that has happened in the story in the book of Esther. So, you know, chapter one is our opening scene with King Aswaris, who is attempting to display his own glory through showing all his riches and all his kingdoms and all the things he accomplished. And then he calls for his queen at the time, Vashti, who did not respond. And so the king was angered, and because the king can't seem to think for his own takes the advice of his advisors, his counselors, to put the queen away and to find him a new queen. And then we see the opening scene in chapter 2 of Esther where she is taken from her home with Mordecai, her elder cousin, into the royal palace. And by God's providence, she is selected to be queen, keeping her heritage as or, or her lineage as a Jew hidden per Mordecai's instructions. And then 
in chapter 3, we see that instead of Mordecai being honored as he uncovered a plot against the king by his trusted eunuchs who are attempting to take the king's life, who are angry with the king for some reason, Mordecai uncovers this, passes on the information to Esther, and return notifies the queen, uh, the king, in which after investigation, they realize that it is true. He hangs the eunuchs, and instead of being honored, what the king does is he just records in his book of Chronicles in front of them these righteous deeds. And then what we see in chapter 4 is um, Haman, actually this is still chapter 3, Haman is um, placed in second in the kingdom. He's the one who's being honored. He is the one who has all the power of the king besides the king himself to do all things. And he was supposed to get honor from everyone who came around him. And and Mordecai refused to do so. So what happens is Haman, furious with Mordecai, demanding his own honor, his own glory, in this personal vendetta of his, he uses the king's signet ring to essentially mark the death date with the total annihilation, the, the total destruction and killing of all Jews within the Persian Empire. So upon this notification that goes out in scene four, we, we come to this great scene of lament where Mordecai tears his clothes, ashes and sackcloth, weeping, and there's loud cries throughout the city amongst the Jews for their upcoming execution. And then what we see through that exhortation that Mordecai gives to Esther, he tells her that such a time as this, that the Lord has put her in this place. So she decides to, to, to fast and pray and calls for all Jews to do so. And then in chapter 5, we see this tale of two plans being put into action. Esther, through the wisdom of God, exercises this plan to approach the king, <coughs> puts on her royal robes, approaches the king, knowing that it could cost it her life, and the king stretches out his scepter. She touches it with protocol, and the king asks her, what is your request? So she asks the king, and she has found favor in his eyes, that she, he would attend, along with Haman, in this feast that she will prepare for them. <coughs> and then Haman has this other plan, feeling good about himself, after having feasted with the king and the queen, thinking much of itself, goes back home, tells all his family, all his friends, look at my glory, look at my riches, look at my sons, but you know none of this means anything to me so long as Mordecai is alive. So he takes the stupid advice of his family and friends, builds uh, gallows in front of his home, 50 cubits high, with the intention to go before the king and petition for the death of Mordecai. And then when we saw last week this providential peripety, all right, and I can say it, but you can hear it, this grand reversal of events through ordinary means taking place, and through a providential insomnia, the king can't sleep, 
he decides to have his eunuch, his servant, read from him from this book of Chronicles that he had later, five years later, after being written in there about what happened, and he remembers Mordecai, and he remembers he never did anything for him. So Haman comes in, happens to be up early in the morning, ready to go before the king, just as the time the king realizes nothing has been done for Mordecai. And the king asks Haman, what should I do for the man I desire to honor? So, of course, Mordecai, I mean, Haman thinks so much of himself. He said, no one else could be in the king's honor but me. And he gives him this grand plan of how to honor it. And then, much to his surprise, the king says, go do so for Mordecai. And so, we see this reversal of things. And so, he, the very man he hates and he intends to kill, he now is leading through this city parade of honoring Mordecai. And afterwards, Mordecai goes back to work. And Haman hurries home in shame, in anxiety of what has happened. And he sees the foresight through his family that if the king intends to do good for Mordecai, that he will inevitably fall. And in the same 24-hour period, now he's being ushered off quickly to go to the second feast that Esther had prepared for the king and himself. Now the time has come for great courage by Esther and what I call courageous confrontation so if you want to look at the points I have up here verses 1 through 6 we will see that she has to exercise the courage to speak but she doesn't just speak in any way she communicates with humility and wisdom and with candor or truth she must count the cost then as she confronts her enemy Haman we see the king's wrath and Haman's demise or his ruin and we see this baffled by the betrayal from the king thinking upon Haman and a perplexment or a confusion about what punishment should be done to Haman as the king walks out in wrath and then Haman because his sin is uncovered, because his plot of evil is uncovered, he fears the consequences rather than wants to repent. And in a desperate plea, the king comes in, sees what's happening, which his actions, a desperate plea, lead to his death. And then we will ask the question, what we can learn from this. So let's look in Esther chapter 7. Esther 7 begins where chapter 6 leaves off. Providential events lead to a time where Haman is covered with shame and his own personal lament. Mordecai was surprised by a special honoring by the king and led by his enemy, and Esther had been busy preparing a meal for the king and her plan. But now the king and Haman join Esther for this special feast with a certain anticipation. We, we know that the king was left with piqued interest at the end of the first feast and interest in wanting to know Esther's request. And Haman just wants to forget the events of this bad day that he began early in the morning to only find out his foe 
was the one he would have to lead for honor by the king. So the text tells us the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Again, after a little wine in the belly, the king, we hear, gives these words, Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Do you remember that? the first feast at this moment internal thoughts and conflict had to be high for two people Haman who was dealing with emotions of anger shame and humiliation in his quest to gain honor and personal honor and glory that had blinded his actions because Mordecai refusing to bow down to him even though it posed no physical threat to him, it fueled his anger, leading to so many steps of his own personal vendetta. No outside force caused Haman more harm than himself. Day after day, Haman chose temptations of pride and anger, ultimately to his own peril. Meanwhile, Esther was being forced to deal with a life-threatening matter. Her people and own family were facing the death sentence. And if anyone found out about her own lineage, she too would be at great risk. She was being compelled to act on behalf of God's chosen people. You can just hear Mordecai's words echoing in her mind. You think back earlier, chapter 4, Mordecai said these words to Esther, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now the moment had finally arrived. Esther carefully crafting her thoughts and actions counting the cost. She didn't know what the outcome would be to her plan, but she knew through her time spent in fasting and prayer had led her to speak. I love how Landon Dowden comments here on this particular moment. He says, the moment of truth finally arrived, Esther would identify with and intercede for her people. We thought she was going to intercede on behalf of Jews in the throne room, or at the first feast, but instead she invited the king and Haman to a second feast. Of course the Lord did some things during the night which Esther had not planned and of which she may have been unaware. Regardless, Mordecai's one-man parade had not eliminated the Jews' problem. It was good for him to receive recognition, but God's people still needed to be released from the death edict. At the second feast, Esther's fortitude was revealed and she confronted her enemy, end quote. This was the moment for courageous confrontation. And God does not call us to be courageous as an end in itself, beloved. Courage is always for being, believing or doing something for 
His kingdom. We're not called to just walk around feeling courageous and strong in ourselves, but we take courage in Him to serve His purposes. The real hero of the book of Esther is God. But that does not take away from Esther's role in His deliverance. So Esther demonstrates courage to speak. And then as we look at chapter or verse 3, the queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for me, for my wish and my people, for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. We have been sold merely as slaves. Men and women, I have, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss <coughs> to the king. Christian, when faced with confronting sin, do you have the courage to speak? Or do you struggle with silence? Are you relying on your own knowledge and strength or are you acknowledging the Lord in all His ways so that He will make straight your path? If we do take courage and not fear, we should recognize that this comes from what Stephen Cole notes here. We can be encouraged by our Lord's pardon. His power, His presence, and His purpose. Courage is always fueled by something and for something. Esther's courage was fueled by her fasting and faith for her people's freedom. You see, Christian, courage should always be in company with something. And that something is wisdom. Do you notice Esther's humility and wisdom in what she communicates. It's not only important that we speak truth, but it is just as important how we deliver it and how we say it. Our delivery does matter. What is significant about Esther's conversation with the king is not just its substance, but also its style. She carefully petitioned His grace and His mercy. Well, at the same time, she revealed her long desire. She wanted to live along with her people. However, she also carefully crafted her words in communication. Do you see that there? She acknowledges the king's time is valuable. And her problem was not with suffering, but her problem was with the genocide of her people and herself. Esther wisely crafted her argument demonstrating that this threat ultimately would be detrimental to the loss of the king. One commentator notes, one could be shrewd without being sinful. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, Beloved, whether you learned about it from history books or, or lived during this time, John F. Kennedy's speech is remembered famously for this line. I bet you guys could probably quote this with me. Ask not what you can do for your country, 
or what your country can do for you. Sorry, see, I'm messing that up. Ask what you can do for your country, right? There's a reason for that. It was a call to do what is right for the greater good, but with a great delivery. We have heard so many times that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's a reality to that. Thinking about this can be so helpful in our confrontation with others. I remember there was this time, well, I was a member at High Point Baptist Church. My wife and I were youth leaders, and I had the high school boys. And I remember seeing one of my high school boys uh, having like a sling on and asking just a simple question, what happened to his arm? And he had explained to me that he had an accident. And I took it for what it was. But apparently a few days later, the Lord got a hold of his heart and he called me in tears, confessing on how he had taken a golf cart without permission and rolled it. You see, beloved, I could have done something at that moment. I could have excused his sin and told him it's okay and that you didn't sin against me or any of those things, but I didn't do that. I spoke to him about the grace of God. And I pointed to him to how the psalmist says our sin is separated as far as from the east is to the west. And that how the apostle John said if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I didn't excuse his sin, but I spoke to him about the grace of God. And then I reminded him that I too am also a sinner, but that I had forgiven him it is important to remember how we speak in our correction in our confrontation in our love towards other brothers and sisters in Christ so going back to the story Esther has demonstrated both humility and wisdom in her words and she has left her let her desire be known but you have to imagine at this point it, it is coming as a shocker to the king. I'm sure Aswaris' anger is both burning inside, and now he wants to know. And this is why verse 5 says, Then King Aswaris said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared do this? Therefore, Esther now acts with a final act of courage. She must reveal her request, and she has counted the cost, just as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. After Esther has carefully made sure to avoid any blame being placed on the king, she speaks and calls out Haman. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Just when Haman thought, things couldn't get any worse than having to honor his sworn enemy Mordecai. He learned that he was wrong about a lot. In just one 24-hour period, Haman was feasting with the king and queen, feeling good about himself, bragging about his wealth, his sons, and power, making plans to get rid of his source of contention with Mordecai. 
Then in a moment, without no warning, he was being forced to honor his sworn enemy who would not honor him. Now he will soon meet the same demise that he had planned for Mordecai. The very construction of a device to murder Mordecai, he would have no idea that soon will be reserved for him. And as I mentioned last week, this is a providential paradise. What a turnaround. A great reversal of evil being put into motion. It just was, as one commentator gives us insight into God's wisdom on this. I love how he puts it here. He says, every day is like a fresh blank sheet of paper being given to us by God. We can never tell what wonderful surprises he may choose to write upon it. So much can happen in just a few hours. Our lives may proceed at an ordinary pace with nothing of great importance appearing to happen. Then suddenly, without warning, dramatic and amazing events may crowd into the developments and answers to our prayers may take place as God chooses to unfold his will and demonstrate his care for us. And on any day, God may be at work in ways that we are not in a position to perceive. He weaves into the pattern of his will the actions of all his creatures, whether wise or foolish. You see, saints, Haman had no idea when he was taken to the second feast that he would be only returning home to be hanged later. For Esther and Mordecai, they had no idea that the night before a providential insomnia would be taking place. This very thing that would lead the king to honor Mordecai for saving his life five years earlier and that Aswarius would be so inclined to grant Esther her desire and wish. When the word around seems to rage and evil seems to triumph, be triumphant, we need reminders like Esther chapter 7 that in the end the wicked will not win. Now at this moment in the story we may be tempted to think, finally, Haman will get what he deserved. But I want you to ask yourself something, saints. What do we deserve? What do we deserve? You see, it's easy to want to see justice and God punish the wicked. But if it was always the outcome and we didn't see God's mercy and grace, then we would all burn in the lake of fire. If any of you follow the true story events of our day, we can find examples for the need for justice, right? But we must also remember the need for the gospel. If you, perhaps last year, followed the story in the news, a young gymnast named Rachel, who finally gathered the courage to speak out against her former doctor, Larry Nassar, was a U.S. gymnast gymnastics team doctor, including for those who were involved in Olympics. And he was convicted of this horrific, of his horrific crimes after many gymnasts, gymnasts came forward. So many young girls fell victim to his sexual predatory practices. 
But just before he was convicted, Rachel had a profound statement to share. <clears throat> Rachel spoke with conviction and compassion to her assaulter, Larry. She said these words, I quote this, Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt would be crushing. And this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience the true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. And then she ends with this, though I extend that to you as well. Beloved, God's judgment and wrath is not something we want. I promise you. It is forever, eternity, burning in the lake of fire, separated from God. However, when He does enact it, He still receives honor and glory from it. So I want us now to look at how the Lord uses the king's wrath to bring about God's providential purposes, both for the deliverance of His people and for His own glory. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You know, being betrayed by those we have trusted can be deeply wounding and confusing for us. And the king is no different here. He's enraged by learning the fate of his wife that he that she being through through the, the manipulation that took place by Haman. His wife that he loved was in that same fate. He's also baffled by the betrayal here. In this moment, Asuerus' desire for wine is no more. He is overcome now by wrath and anger and must walk away. So he goes into the palace garden to think. If you think back on this whole story, and this is why I pointed it out at the beginning, very few of Asuerus' decisions presented in this book come without someone counseling him toward a specific action. He was convinced by others to banish the queen, Vashti, to gather virgins, to find a new queen, and help issue an edict that called for the annihilation of the Jews. Esther's opportunity to present her request is just one more attempt to persuade the king to act. And Asuerus was easily swayed by others because he lacked discernment and often lacked the desire for details. Luckily for us as children of God, we are not left to our own wisdom or foolish counsel of the world. We have been given His Word and the church. This is why Ephesians tells us that He appointed some to be apostles, some to be evangelists, some to teach, some all these gifts, right? And then, um, as Paul proclaims in Ephesians chapter 4.14, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, children of the light, 
children of God, when we are equipped with the gospel, we are given the greatest weapon against the evil, all evil, and false teachers. However, the king is left to his own worldly thoughts. He had considered Haman a trusted deputy, someone he had personally promoted, only to now discover that all of the names that Esther could have mentioned, it's doubtful that Haman was on his own mind. And I swear she's offered to grant Esther a request. He had no idea her life was in danger. <coughs> Nor did he know his closest counselor, second in command, was the one to blame. I'm sure he's thinking about the fact that he gave Haman his own signet ring and approval. Now the king is perplexed about the punishment. How could he punish Haman for something he signed off on? Maybe he went out in the garden to see if anyone else was available for counsel. We don't know why he left other than he was angry at the moment. And notice how Haman doesn't run after the king to try and defend himself. He knows he's caught. And his fate is being sealed. So he stays in fear. He's hoping for a desperate plea before the queen. Haman's foolish and regrettable actions have led him to this outcome. He had not acted on behalf of the king or his best interests. Yet his own desires for honor and vengeance are leading to his demise. I'm sure Esther's wisely crafted words used got Haman's attention. For we have been sold and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The words that he penned with his own hand in the edict. These are the same words used in Haman's writings. And much to his surprise, he obviously didn't know Esther was a Jew. His pursuit of self-honor would be his undoing in the end. Sin so often has surprising and unintended consequences, don't it? Sin always gives an illusion of promising what it can't deliver. This is why our sins often become addictions that is never enough. I love how John MacArthur puts it. He says, man is not simply influenced by sin, but is completely overpowered by it. And none can escape that dominance by his own effort. Sin is a defiling disease that corrupts every person, degrades every individual, disquiets every soul. It steals peace and joy from the heart and replaces them with trouble and pain. Sin is implanted in every human life and its deadly force brings a universal depravity that no man can cure. You see, saints, sin never lets you know that it's leading you into a life-ending trap, does it? Scripture, scripture however, never ceases to sound the alarm. Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. It says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Beloved, let us heed these warnings and seek to flee from sin. Let us always remember that sin never leads to any one to good 
but only death. If we are to be surprised, let it be from the multiply, multiply blessings of obedience rather than what Haman was experiencing here. Haman was def- definitely experiencing the multiplied burdens of his own sin. As you see, too often we want to avoid consequences than offering confession. Once confronted about his actions, Haman was terrified and, and in his full-on survival mode. He should have followed the king out of the room, but he already knew that it would be useless. While he shouldn't have gotten so close to the queen because protocol required that no one was allowed to be within a few steps of her, he was out of control and he was taking a risk, a risk that would ultimately cost him his life. See, Loudon rightly points out concerning Haman and sin four observations. He says when we experience the consequences of sin, it's because we get caught in it. When we experience these consequences, it's because we get caught in it. And we get caught in it, number two, he says, because we don't want to confess our sin. We get caught because we don't want to confess our sin. Thirdly, he says, we don't confess our sin because we think we can conceal it. Isn't that true? We don't want to confess it. We think we can just sweep it under the rug or no one's going to find out. And then he lastly says, we conceal our sin because we don't want to confess that our struggle to someone who cares for us. Christian, we should not care more about our image or perceived false reality than the reality of where we really are. In fact, we were worse off than others could ever think or imagine. Nothing is hidden from God. He always sees us at our absolute worst and still loves us the same because He has sent His Son to atone for all our sin. Beloved, we know we are free to confess our struggles, knowing our identity is not found in what anyone thinks, but it is through what the Lord says about us in Christ. May He empower us to confess our sin to someone in our lives, to make no provision for it in our lives. As John Piper likes to say, we must kill sin lest it be killing us. Do we Do you pursue holiness and flee sin in this way? Or are we guilty of being like Haman, pursuing and concealing our sin? You know, there's a providential irony that I see here in the text. Haman was pleading for mercy, but yet he was unwilling to extend it. Apparently, life does matter when his is on the line. Secondly, we see that Haman was seeking help, but there is no evidence of repentance, only regret on his part. He's feeling remorseful. But beloved, children of God, children of love, children of light, listen to me, being remorseful is not the same as repentance. It only demonstrates that we are sorry for being caught in it. 
Repenting from sin means doing all you can in the Lord's power not to return to it. And it remains, it means removing from your life anything that pushes you toward that sin rather than towards obedience. This is why we should remember Jesus' words in the parable when he talks about plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands. In other words, what he is saying, if you are going to be tempted by sin, be willing to do radical things to flee from that sin. So if TV is causing you to sin, get rid of it. If having too much money is a problem from you, then give it away. If, and hey, trust me when I tell you this is convicting. If food is a sin in your life, be willing to take radical steps to do something about it. I mean, I can go on, on and on and on about it. We all fall into categories of struggles, of sin in our lives. The point here is that we must be willing to flee from that sin that is keeping us from tasting and seeing the goodness of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who came down from his heavenly throne from the right hand of the Father, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve, conquered sin and death once and all, raised from the dead, and gave us the rewards of eternal life. Lastly, I want you to see another irony here when Haman falls before Esther, he's falling before a Jew. This being because another Jew would not fall before him. Isn't that ironic there? And then verse 8, the king returned from the palace gardens to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the king, queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. You see, Haman seals his fate with his actions. The king returns only to find him falling towards Esther. And think about this, husbands. If you were there and this was your wife, what would you think? I swear, he can't believe his own eyes. He can only think the worst. Not only has he felt the anger of betrayal of a trusted advisor, but now it appears that this man he trusted with so much would be attempting to violate his wife in his own house. Apparently, King had already decided that punishment was nece necessary. And his men had came in and seized him and putting a hood over his head. But just like other times, the king would take advice one more time. His eunuch, Harbana, lets the king know about the gals Haman had made. The ones that he constructed that was intended for Mordecai's death. The same Jew who had saved the king's life. The ultimate reversal of events now will occur at this moment. Haman will be hung by his own plan for Mordecai. Verse 9. Then Hermana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gals that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, and the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gals that he had prepared for Mordecai. But then the wrath of the king was abated. What a remarkable story here for us. But then the question is, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this story? I want to offer five things that we can learn from this passage. If you'd like to write things down, write this down. First, we must 
risk much for the gospel. We must risk much for the gospel. Secondly, we must confront evil rather than cooperating with it. Confront evil rather than cooperating with it. Identify with and intercede for God's people. Fourth, live so that when we what is concealed is revealed so that it will be for your reward and not your ruin. In other words, live in a way that it becomes rewarding, a blessing from God, rather than to your demise, your ruin. Lastly, speak and work for the good of others. So let's look a little bit at this. Risk much for the gospel. You see, Esther was courageous by putting her life on the line twice. Esther 6 is evidence that God can accomplish His plans without us, right? Providential insomnia. Just so happens the book of Chronicles that he hadn't looked at for five years is open and read at the exact thing, recording of Mordecai's, uh, what he did to, to save the king's life. The very thing that, that, that Haman constructs for the death of Mordecai is later used to hang him on it. Chapter 6 proves that God does not need us to accomplish His plans. But then what we see in chapter 5 and 7 is proof that He chooses to do so. He chooses to use ordinary people like you and me to accomplish His purposes. We are placed by the Lord exactly where we are right now, where we live, where we visit for God's purposes. And responding on this, sharing the gospel is worth the risk. It's worth everything. To chief end of man, to glorify God by sharing the gospel, we are glorifying God. But let me ask you, beloved, what risks are you taking for the gospel? How are you living life on purpose so others ask about the hope that lies in you? Our dear sister said that this morning. How do we testify to the hope that lies within us? Risk much for the gospel. Secondly, confront evil. Esther could have remained silent. She could have. But the problem for her people would not leave. Right? It wouldn't have been solved. Nor could she be sure it wouldn't even later come back on her. See, sin left unconfronted usually escalates and multiplies. Let me ask you, do you tend to ignore sin in others? Are you ignoring sin in your own life? You see, beloved, we don't want to be a, better at dealing with sins of others than our own. Fourthly, we must identify and intercede for God's people. Are there injustice in our city, our government, that we remain silent on? I've I think about our, our work and how often we see unfair practices. Or there are those who take advantage of others. Do we speak up when given the opportunity to do so? I, I particularly think about the issue of abortion, not only in our country, but specifically right here in El Paso. I talked about this over a month ago, I think, when we were looking at Esther chapter 4. We we, I shared with you what, what's going on with the Gospel Coalition and all the things the Lord has done in the last few years. We, In chapter 4 of Esther, we observed the man plotting the death of an, an entire race 
in a genocide-like fashion. Abortion is much like this. We must be a voice for those who don't have a voice. The unborn. This could be the first year, the first year that no legal abortions will take place in El Paso County. Can you believe that? That's an amazing miracle of God. But He has chosen to use people in this matter. And He uses people like the Southwest Coalition. He uses Westside Pregnancy Care Center. He uses people like you to speak, to fund, to, to advocate for life. Let me ask you this. Would those in your spheres of influence be surprised if we told them that you're a Christian? Let's live for reward, not room. Live for reward, not room. My children and I used to sing the song. You cannot hide from God. His eyes are fixed on you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you cannot hide from God. You see, sin will always be revealed in God's time. No matter how long. Even if it's been years, if it doesn't come out in the wash, I assure you, beloved, it will come out in the rinse. The question is, if you are living in such a way that when it is revealed, it will be for your reward and not your downfall. You know, David in his sin with Bathsheba later wrote these words in Psalm 32. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And if you remember your Bibles, what David committed, that sin, adultery, and the murder of, of a wife's husband trying to cover up his sin. See, Haman would have never gotten so close to Esther had the queen, king been there. Let's remember that our king is always there. We cannot hide from God. He always sees you. He not only expects our obedience, but here's the beautiful thing about this. He also gives us the grace to obey. Let us live for His glory and our joy. And finally, let's speak and work for the good of others. When we as elders and leaders gather together, we regularly pray for all of you and speak about the care that you need as members of this church. We pray for those who are sick. Just this week, John and Chris and I were praying and thinking about them. We desire to build up the flock and grow in our health as a church. I've said it before, I would rather have 20 wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ than 2,000 disobedient followers. We desire to build up the flock. I'm personally always trying to make us think about others. This is why we pray for other churches and other pastors. Why we support and pray for missionaries. I desire for all of you that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that we, we may be presented 
before the throne with what is good and excellent, as the Apostle Paul prays in Philippians chapter 1, with all knowledge and discernment in the gospel. In contrast, Haman only wanted the humiliation and death of Mordecai. Let me ask you, what do you typically want from others? What do you want for others? Do you rejoice for the good of others or do you find yourself feeling a little bit jealous? When others defile or sin against you, do you pray for them or do you seek for God to enact His justice towards them? You see that God does not need any counselors like King Aswaris. He is not only capable of, but He always makes the right decision. You see, the Lord will defeat all His enemies. He's not only aware of their defeat, but He is working through Christ to accomplish His perfect justice. For Haman, the king's wrath was satisfied with Haman's death. But beloved, hear this truth. God's wrath does not escape with death for His enemies. However, God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. His judgment in granting salvation is only righteous by the blood of Jesus. For those who place their trust in Christ, His wrath has already been fulfilled. And for the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. There is no greater news than this. Who needs to hear this good news today? Christians, sometimes we need to be reminded that God will ultimately defeat all His enemies, but we also need to be sure we're not among them. Do you look forward to this day? The day when there will be no more tears, no more death. Trust in Christ's supremacy in your life. Taste and see that He is good. Friends, the wrath of God is real. I ask you, are you being used as vessels for honorable or dishonorable use? You see, on this side of the cross, do you know if you will be spared God's wrath? Living for yourself or earning your way in God's favor is fruitless. Friends, come to the one who has rescued rebels like you and me by His blood. Let us end our time reading passages of scripture from Joshua it says no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses I so also will be with you I will not leave you or forsake you be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that the Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but ye shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Haven't I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For your Lord, your God, 
is with you wherever you go. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the gift of life you give us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Apart from you, we would have no part at all. We thank you that you were the ultimate demonstration of strength and courage by sending your Son not only to live the life that we are unable to do, but to die the death that we deserve. I can hear it now in the agony of the garden. Father, if it would be your will, not mine, shall this cup pass with sweat, tears of blood. Jesus, He who knew no sin became sin for us. What a glorious thought that you, a perfect, holy, and righteous God, would be able to enact not only your perfect justice by wrath, but being the one who would actually drink the cup of wrath on behalf of sinners such as us. Lord, let, let us never forget the cross. May we flee and run quickly away from the sins that would keep us from tasting and seeing the goodness, the glory of who you are for our joy and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord that His Word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible Word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday at 9 a.m. for connections and at 10.30 a.m for our worship service. We are located at the Baptist Student Ministry at 101 East University near Utah. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.